Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stefano Gualini and Riccardo Fasone, the authors of Fictional Games, a philosophy of world building and imaginary play from 2023. The publisher, by the way, is Bloomsbury. Before we jump right in, though, I would want to let you know that if you like our show or this episode in specific, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice, and share this episode with your friends, family, and who else is important to you. (laughs) And now back to the show. Today, we shall hopefully get rock-solid answers to questions such as what roles do imaginary games have in storytelling or why do fiction authors outline the rules of a game that the audience will never play? This book is combining perspectives from philosophy, literature theory, and game studies and therefore provides the first in-depth investigation into the significance of fictional games within fictional worlds. Stefano and Ricardo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourselves. Uh, It depends on what you mean by a bit. I could just say a a human individual, and that would be the shortest answer. Um, If you care to know more, I live in Malta. I'm an academic in games, and my background is in architecture and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my name is Riccardo Fassone. I am a, um, uh, a scholar and a professor at the University of Torino. Uh, I teach stuff relating to games and digital media in general, and uh, I'm also a game designer. I've been doing uh, different projects, especially in analog uh, rather than digital games for the most part. Okay, great. But of course, we have to check for your Ludo street credibility. So please tell us and our listeners, what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now? I mean, not right now because, you know, but right now, right now. <laughs> sure. Uh, if I can start, my favorite games are the ones designed by Ricardo. That's, uh, <laughs> that's my straight answer. And <laughs> as far as what I'm playing right now, I'm in my fourth run of The Last of Us 2, and I'm also a competitive player of Super Smash Ultimate. 
Yeah, I don't have, I think, a favorite games, uh, a favorite game or favorite games other than the ones designed by Stefan, of course, because now I feel compelled to, to sort of say this. But <laughs> that was uh, yeah, well, right now, I'm, I'm, well, we work well together, so that that's that's uh, that's something. Um, so what I'm playing right now, I'm playing a, a nice um, downhill biking sort of simulator called uh, Lonely Mountain uh, Downhill. And I'm also playing extensively and sort of very intensively a card game, which is a fairly famous card game called Battle Lines from Reiner Knizia. Oh, okay. Well, we'll circle back to your book now. In your book, you draw from contemporary cinema and literature, from the Hunger Games to the science fiction of Ian M. Banks, and thereby introduce five key functions that different types of imaginary games have in world building but before we deep dive right in these five complexes please tell our listeners how did you come to write fictional games um, in the first place okay um, again this could be a long story or a short one uh, the short version of it is that um in one of the, i mean part of my research also deals with science fiction studies and both for research and for pleasure i was reading one summer a very a quite famous i would say book by ian banks uh, published in 1988 if i'm not mistaken called the player of games i don't know if you're familiar with it rudolf unfortunately not but please enlighten me this sounds exciting Uh, the most exciting part for maybe the people listening to this podcast is that it is the only book that I know in which the protagonist is a game scholar. Mm -hmm. right? And part of the, the, the plot of this book revolves around the fictional game called Azad. Right? As a matter of fact, uh, I was so intrigued and interested in this, this fictional game, and actually that kind of um, that spawned a wider interest in representation of games in fiction, and especially those games that exclusively exist as fictional ideas, as fictional construct. constructs, that is, um, things invented by authors to, uh, for us to imagine playful activities within a fictional world. Many of these games, like in the case of Azad in the book that I just mentioned, are unplayable in the sense they are quite um, incompletely sketched out or have qualities that do not necessarily align with how we build stuff or play stuff. And so I was very interested and I started doing some research on this topic, um, which culminated in a 2021 paper called Fictional Games and Utopia, The Case of Azad, which came out on a science fiction and film television journal, which is a uh, Liverpool University journal. Um, I loved it. And while doing research for it, I figured out that there was not much written on fictional games from the academic perspective and like from a philosophical perspective. And what's their contribution to our understanding of literature and how do they function as literary devices? And so I called up Ricardo and said, like, hey, would you be interested in taking this to the next step instead of only doing a paper on one game, focused on one use of one game in particular, again, Utopia and Azad, um, we decided to expand it into something that uh, of a more general interest, something that other scholars might use to get inspiration or start their work on fictional games on. So again, it started that way, and I was lucky enough to be contacted by Bloomsbury to 
um, right with them. They say, do you have something ready? And it happened that I did have this idea ready. So Ricardo was so kind to join into this crazy kind of journey. And here we are now. Perfect. <laughs> everything so come... been so long, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, no, yeah. no, no. That was I mean, a short every... version, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but everything came together, you know, the publisher, you, you're pre-planning a partner in crime. Perfect. So, <laughs> so um, please tell us, um, what are uh, fictional games exactly and why should your listeners pay attention to them? Uh, I'm also taking this question also because I partly answered it already. Mm. So fictional games are, again, those kind of uh, games or playful activities or playable objects that only exist within fiction. And, um, well, uh, maybe Ricardo will tell something more about this later, but uh, why should your listeners pay attention? Uh, the thing is that for game studies, this is a field where our skills and our interest could be used and could be fruitfully put to, to the test. Um, but it's also a field that we never looked at before as game scholars. As a matter of fact, by doing research from for, for the previous paper, uh, I told you there's very little written on fictional games from the point of view of games that only exist within the fiction. Mm. There is quite a sizable literature on detective novels or sports within games or science fiction themes within games. But yeah. we didn't look into this particular app until this point. So I suppose that if you're a game scholar looking for a new interesting field with almost yet untapped potential, this is a pretty interesting one, especially for the scholars with a background in, say, theater, philosophy, fiction, or literary studies? This would be my answer. Yeah. Well, let us deep dive then in your five key functions. You start off by arguing that fictional games can emphasize the dominant values and ideologies of the fictional society they belong to. Yeah, this is something that, uh, as game scholars, but also generally as, as people playing games, we, we can observe in, in real life. Like, outside of fiction, games often sort of encapsulate the dominant or sort of the, the, the values, so to speak, uh, and beliefs of a certain society, of a certain mm -hmm. community, of a certain civilization. And so, you know, there's plenty of paper, of papers and, and articles describing how SimCity is sort of a, a city builder that sort of encapsulates the way in which we think about uh, building cities in, in the real world and how, you know, it, it sort of also incorporates sort of a late capitalist uh, kind of ideology into its mechanics. And mm -hmm. so we kind of know that games are playable ideologies, so to speak. And and even McLuhan, back in, in, in Understanding Media, used to sort of wrote that, that you can tell a lot about a civilization or a community by sort of observing the, the games that are played within that context and we sort of asked the question uh, is this true for fictional games as well uh, and we found out that this is actually very true and that one of the main sort of uh, functions of fictional games within works of fiction is that of being a a sort of a placeholder or a shortcut rather for um, explaining to readers or the viewers of a film what the uh, community or civilization uh, they are encountering that work of uh, fiction is all about. So mm -hmm. say in a science fiction novel, uh, games are very helpful to sketch 
out or sort of to let uh, readers understand how things work within that uh, within that uh, within that world. And so we have a couple, uh, well, more than a couple. We have a few examples of that in our uh, in our book. Uh, for example, the film Quintet by Robert Altman, which is a late nineteen seventies film in which a a sort of dying civilization is sort of obsessively and almost uh, fetishistically at, uh, attached to a game uh, they are playing, which sort of encapsulates and represents what they stand for, their values and their beliefs. But we have really plenty of examples of how uh, fictional games represent ideologies. For example, a game called uh, Wicked Grace, which is a, a um, sort of a, a game within the game uh, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, which sort of tells us something about what the the civilization that inhabits the world of Dragon Age Inquisition uh, believes, uh, uh, what, what their values are, and, and the kinds of things that are similar to our society and the kind of things that are different. So, yeah, fictional games, just like regular games, are kind of playable ideologies in our view. Yeah. And right after that, you continue by underlining that some imaginary games function in functional, f sorry, function in fictional worlds as critical utopian tools, and thereby you argue they inspire shifts in the thinking and political orientation of the fictional characters. Well, how is this to be understood exactly? Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's there's some sort of continuity to fr from what we were we were saying earlier about ideology in the sense that if we agree on the fact that games and fictional games in this case can represent dominant values and ideologies, we can also maybe infer or, or, or sort of maintain that they can also inform the understanding of these ideologies for people who maybe are against them or that want to overthrow them or that sort of have this utopian impulse in creating something better or a better world or society than the one they live in. And so games can trigger that kind of understanding of one's uh, predicament and in turn also trigger some sort of, of, of impulse into changing uh, that predicament, sort of overthrowing the uh, forces that are oppressive in that case. And so we have, again... Uh, a few examples of, of how that happens. Uh, and there are maybe two ways in which this can happen. For example, games can be the representation of that utopian uh, state of affairs towards which someone would, would, uh, would be uh, sort of aiming at. But mm -hmm. also they can, by sort of encapsulating the ideology of society, they can make it present or make it very visible for the player and then uh, triggering them to, to sort of to sort of modify and change things. One example that I really enjoy is, is um, the novel The Running Man by Richard Bachman, which was the mm -hmm. sort of the pen name of early pen name used by Stephen King, yeah. uh, in which a number of TV, it's, it's a future society where a number of TV games are played and these are very cruel sort of sadistic games. And the most important of those is The Running Man, where a man is captured, so to speak, and put in a very... Uh, dangerous situation, he, and if he, he can escape, uh, uh, sort of his assailants or his the hunters are called in novels. He's then uh, he then receives a prize in money, but it, it doesn't happen. So the, the the contestant is usually killed. And in this novel, 
the the protagonist sort of takes a step uh, sort of aside from playing the game and realizes that the game is sort of the representation of the cutthroat society he lives in. And so he decides to sort of step outside of the game and aim for the heart of that society. I'm not saying more because there's a spoiler alert involved here, but that's a very interesting case of, of, of games triggering some sort of uh, utopian uh, impulse or utopian uh, sort of a, a utopian desire in, in their players. Hmm. Well, we have come across some fictional titles by now, but maybe it's time to, 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 for some uh, hashtag real talk. <laughs> Please tell our listeners now, what is the most interesting fictional game you have encountered during the work for this book and why? Uh, I'm going to start with this one. This is Stefano again. And I'm a very simple man in the sense that we've been working on this game, on this game. I was saying game, but I meant book. I mean, mm. the difference. Okay. Anyway, I've been working on this book together with Ricardo for the past, let's say, almost three years. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've encountered hundreds of fictional games. Actually, in the book, we talk about 93 in particular, uh, but we could have added at least... 40 more without trouble, but the book was becoming too big already. It's already 80,000 words. So where was I going with this? I'm a simple person, so I'm still in love with this very first one that triggered my interest. I'm still thinking of the game of Azad as one of the most fascinating representations of games that could not exist in our world. And the reason for that is that, similar to what Ricardo was saying, is an example of a fictional game which is absolutely central to the narrative, and that also lends itself to a utopian use. So it's really strange. So depending on how you play the game, you propose a certain political vision. And uh, it becomes very, very clear how playing a game as a manifestation of power or as a replica of power also leads to political changes within the actual structure of power. So mm. it was a very fascinating idea. Plus, it's a very incomplete game that leaves a lot to be filled in by the imagination of the reader. And because it's, okay, again, maybe... It was a bit too long ago, but it's part of a novel called The Player of Games. So to me, this was how I first fell in love with the topic, and I stick to it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm going a, a slightly different route here. Um, there's a game in the novel I was referring to, uh, The Running Man, that is only really alluded to, maybe in a paragraph, maybe, I don't know, it's like six lines, it's not more than that. And it's one of these sadistic, cruel TV games that exist in this future society, and it's called Treadmill to Box. Mm -hmm. And it's in the description, it says something like, this is a TV game where we take people with, for example, with uh, heart conditions or people in very bad health, we put them on a treadmill, and the, you know, the ones that survive get the box, so they, they get the money. And <laughs> this is an example of, of a series of things that are interesting about fictional games. One is that they're very incomplete, but they can be imagined. So we kind of are able to fill in the gaps and imagine how that would work, what it would look like even on, on this sort of dystopian TV channel. Two, that they are a way for authors to show their craft. The description of that uh, fictional game is very Stephen King in the sense that it is sort of has this sort of delicious, sadistic quality to it where you almost you're kind of feel bad about the fact that she, that is so well written you kind of enjoy the description of these these poor people you know with heart conditions running on treadmills yeah 
And, and the other thing that's interesting about it is that it sometimes fictional games show something that is sort of rooted, deeply rooted into games in general. And I think cruelty or sort of some sh- sort of shades of cruelty or uh, examples of cruelty can be found also in real games. But there's, there's a cruel aspect. There's almost always some sort of, uh, sort of playfully oppressive aspects in playing games uh-huh. so that you're always sort of on the verge of being the oppressed or being the oppressor or being the sadistic or being the masochistic uh, sort of subject within games, and I think these little description that ha- sort of that is found in that book sort of is a very good indication of this in- inherent sort of natural quality of games and play. Or well, at least in the way that we understand them, right? Like they're definitely a reflection of what we consider games. So, in our society, we value, say, competition, performance. Um, like domination of one over the other, territorial control, and so on and so forth. And it's not strange to see that often reflected in fictional games. But there are also fictional games that take the opposite route, right, Ricardo? In a sense that... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think think sort of the way in in which we understand games as as, as a society or sort of, say, West, sort of inhabitants of, of Western... Uh, countries in late capitalism sort of of course informs both the ways sort of how fictional games are written or 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 shown in movies but also the way of course in which we understand them and, and that's why in the book we sort of make a uh, an attempt at, at at reaching out to sort of explicitly to scholars from different cultural uh backgrounds and we have actually have a line in the book saying you know we have dealt with games that we are familiar with in terms of language, in terms of sort of cultural references, but we expect people who live in different cultural contexts or have a different background to be able to find something interesting in, in fictional games that are more familiar to them or that they are, for example, in books that are only in a language that we weren't able to, to access or understand. And so there's, of course, uh, a wide variety of fictional games that is completely untapped from our point of view. Hmm. I just uh, I just took another uh, look inside uh, your lovely book because I really do love the the, the book cover. And Stefan, you gotta tell me if if I'm correct. It says here you also worked uh, co-worked or worked on the actual the cover of the book. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, like Ricardo, and like also being an architect, as I mentioned, like I often do the art for my games or my books. Mm-hmm. So I was co- complicit in the design of the cover of the book. As you can tell, there's like an allusion to chess, which is often something we return to uh, during the book, especially in the introductory chapters. <clears throat> But all the little pawns that play on these chessboards are reference to different kinds of fictional games that are present in the book. If you open different chapters, you will see that different chapters are represented by different pawns that you also see on the on the front cover. So I don't know what else you want me to tell you or how we made it or... No, what, it's just the, I, I just wasn't aware till now, so it's really great. I loved it before, yeah, kind but of, now kind I just... This, yeah. You kind of have this do-it-yourself mentality about books <laughs> and articles and games that we do. We, we tend to do most of the things that we can do by ourselves. Hmm. Circling back again, your third point now, 
it aims to the circumstance that a few fictional games are conducive to the transcendence of a particular form of being, such as the overcoming of human corporeality. So would you please explain this argument uh, for our listeners? Uh, this is Stefano again. More than an argument is an observation that uh, fictional games are also used in that transcendent way. Allow me to explain it very simply. It's going to be quite short. Mm -hmm. Ricardo mentioned that fictional games, very much like real games, as in the games we play in our actual societies, can in a way manifest ideological views or can suggest the overcoming of these ideological views in a form of subversion or rebellion or revolution or rejection of these values. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, what if we were to look at games that reject instead of values the, let's say, physical or cultural context you're part of? Um, think about maybe, Rudolf, you've been German, uh, you're familiar with the um, Glass Beats game by Hermann Esse, right? Yes. I yes. suppose you read it in school, but I'm not quite sure. In, in any case, you know that in that book, you see that the game that they play, which is called, again, the Glass Beats game for the um, people who haven't read it, which is sort of like a game that encompasses culture is a game that in a way transcends culture and brings it into one single context of play and recombination and almost musical harmony, right? Mm -hmm. So in that case, you can take the game as an indication of how culture could be superseded by a superculture based on a game. Right. That would be a way in which, in a way, we can transcend human disciplines through a game or through a higher standpoint, culturally speaking. Uh, instead, like a more down-to-earth answer to your question could be, for example, I'm thinking, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the science fiction author Alistair Reynolds. I mean, I'm bringing this out. I don't know if how many people here, I mean, listening, are also science fiction fans, but he's a brilliant author in my mind. And um, in a short story of his called Diamond Dogs, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a fictional games that fictional game that requires the player to alter their body in order to progress um, to the point that towards the game they s seem to be abandoning both the cognitive capabilities of humans and the bodily capabilities of humans to cope with the game to a point that at a certain point they can no longer communicate or be recognized by humans by anybody else and uh, they are uniquely driven by this obsession for the game. So there are fictional games that in a way show this kind of evolutionary push. There's something imposed on us or maybe imposed by ourselves on us that serve as a transformational stimulus or an, an evolutionary prod for us to go beyond our current, say, cultural or physical contexts. So there's quite a few games. This is perhaps the hardest of the six topics that we treat and maybe the most rare ones, but we found enough cases to, again, propose this observation to our readers. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much because, um, well, to be honest, I didn't quite get it before you, before you, your lovely explanation right now. That's great. You know, I try. I dribble and shoot and hope for the best. I'm not always <laughs> accomplishing my That's goals. Great. Also, I find your fourth point now very fascinating. And um, help me here out if I understand you correctly. Imaginary games within works of fiction can deceptively blur the boundaries between the contingency of play and the irrevocably seriousness of 
quote, real life. And um, they sort of do this by either camouflaging life as a game or disguising a game as something with more permanent consequences. Yeah, so there's this literary trope we're probably all familiar with where we uh, read a book or encounter some sort of narrative and we are sort of, the, the text asks us the question or we ask ourselves the question, is this, what, what the characters within this narrative are living, is this a dream or is, or is this reality? Are they dead or are they alive? Is this a game or is this not a game? Mm -hmm. And so there's this form of, of subtle deception that is performed on the reader or the viewer that it is also also sort of one of the, the pleasures of some sort of, of certain narratives, you know, to figure out whether is this happening or is this a dream? Is yeah. this reality or not? And it's a very common trope, so to speak. And I think games are particularly um, adaptable in this sense. And, and the, the idea of a game being blurred within the confines or the limits of, of real life is something that works really well in fiction uh, for a number of reasons. One reason is that uh, we tend to understand games as separated from our actual lives. And so we tend to impose different rules on, on games than we would in real life. For example, if we're playing a game, a match, a tennis match or a tennis game with, with someone who is our boss at work, we're probably treating that person differently than we would at work. So we mm -hmm. impose a different set of social rules even when we're playing a game with someone. And this, of course, can be taken to extremes in, in, in different forms of narrative. There's a, a film we quote in the book called The Game by David Fincher. It's a fairly uh, fairly popular, uh, very nice, very cool film with, with Michael Douglas, where yeah. this man spends the whole movie thinking, sort of trying to figure out whether he, what he's going through is a game or not. And of course, this has major consequences because... His understanding is, if this is a game, then I, I have nothing to be worried about, nothing to fear, because there's, there's no harm that can come out, out of a game, right? But right. if this is not a game, then, then I'm in big trouble, because this is real life, and so all the things I'm going through may actually be harmful or even kill me in the end. And another uh, example that we make is a fictional game in a an episode of the TV series Rick and Morty, which I'm sure most people are familiar with at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and this fictional game is called Roy, A Life Well Lived. And it's a sort of, is it's portrayed as an arcade kind of game where you, you go in an arcade room and play that game. And it's a sort of a virtual reality experience where you live as a sort of a regular kind of normal uh, or what is supposed to be a normal human going through different phases of 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 their life. And so this is sort of the, an interesting an interesting opposite of what we think of as a game so in a very uh, sort of adventurous complicated frantic world such as that of brick and morty then the game is to play a very sort of normal kind of almost boring um life and so but this is a, a sort of a, a, an immersive experience where the player of the game sort of forgets about the fact that that is a game and so this is a very interesting trope because games are both separate but also inevitably blurred into our lives. And so it, sort of entering and exiting uh, games is one thing we do very often and sort of in a very almost a natural fashion, but that can be used as as 
sort of fuel for narrative in very interesting ways. Yeah, right. Ricardo also think about the uh, Ricardo mentioned Rick and Morty as an example of say pop culture reference. Another one that the uh, listeners might be familiar with is the one episode of Black Mirror called Playtest, in mm-hmm. which again the whole episode is played on this kind of blurred and permeable boundary between am I living real life or is this still part of the game that I decided to play or is this a weird combination of both? Uh, I think Ricardo did a fantastic job, so I just wanted to add this uh, little piece of info in case people were not familiar with Rick and Morty, but perhaps with Black Mirror. Yeah, totally. So it's a, a huge uh, a huge portfolio, obviously. So I can only recommend take a look inside this book for yourself out there, people. <laughs> and last but not least... Um, fictional games can function as meta-reflexive tools suggesting critical and or satirical perspectives on how actual games are designed, played, sold, manipulated, experienced, understood, and utilized as part of our culture. Uh, This is Stefano again. I think this is one of my most liked and uh, absolutely favorite uh, pieces of the book because I'm very interested in this idea of meta-referentiality and Mm self-reflection. So if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, uh, think, for example, of a novel within a novel, right? Uh, What kind of expressive role would that have? Well, it can in a way match or parallel some of the events in the actual novel right in the action novel or it can be used as a i don't know a criticism of how novels are written or sold or on the publishing industry mm-hmm. so it has like kind of a tongue-in-cheek and sort of uh kind of a bit of meta and uh, kind of uh, snarky normally little comments on the culture that generated something and we see that also in fictional games within fiction and in particular uh, about fictional games within games, right? Yeah. Think about, for example, I think the, the paramount example here would be um, in Disco Elysium. I don't know if you played Rudolph, but I suppose yes. that yeah, big such a being such a big hit, many of our, the listeners in game studies would have uh, probably played it. Uh, you know that there's plenty of fictional games in in Disco Elysium, and most of them are board games such as the. Uh, Rao Brita or the Viticulturist or Archipelago of Insulinde or again like you can find fictional games all over the game and they are used very expressively. One fictional game in particular is a sort of a video game played via the radio, right? It's called Viral Untethered and the, the, the player gets to know about this game by visiting the um, the game developer's studio that was abandoned and it's in some basement in Martinez. Uh, the player also gets to know about this game by talking to the former developers who abandoned the game because it was becoming too expensive and too large and was taking a toll on their mental health. Yeah. And I believe it doesn't take um, it doesn't take like a lot of imagination to recognize that definite meta-referential in, intent here in the developers of Disco Elysium, Zaum, to present the story of a small development team biting off more than they could chew uh, in working to produce like a large narratively intricate and a large-scale title. So in a way, they use a game within a game to talk about their own um, 
adventure, their, their own struggle or their own uh, design issues with their own games. And there's many more like this. Take, for example, and this is going to be very quick, uh, in The Simpsons, I don't know, there's plenty of fictional games, right? And they generally are sarcastic winks and smirks to the games industry. As in, look how stupid kind of games you do, how derivative these everything is, and how poorly marketed and how brutal this stuff is in terms of, say, forget, I don't know, subtlety, violence, uh, yeah. marketing. Again, like this kind of self-reflexivity also lends itself as a satire towards game culture, uh, game design, the games industry, the market models we follow, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, I find this particularly great because, again, it gives us a lens to reflect on game studies and game culture by looking at a game within a game. And that's kind of freaky and interesting and cool, and I like that very much. Hmm. Since we're entering the final final round now, so this is where I'd like to ask my guests for a little meta-reflection suits perfectly of course to your answer what aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book and um that or that didn't make the the cut and secondly and i'm really excited to ask that one where do you see game studies as a research field in general at the moment it's uh, this is stefano again it's a very difficult answer i mean question to answer and it's so good, in fact, that I don't want to spoil it with a bad answer, at least the one concerning game studies. Where is it going in the future? I have no idea. You definitely know that this is not a single field, but a fragmented set of disciplinary approaches and sometimes multidisciplinary, sometimes monodisciplinary. But again, it's very hard to, to boil it down into or to consider it under a single header. So game studies is more like a capture all kind of categorical word. And so it's very hard to say, like, where is this going as a field in the future? I mean, if you're thinking about AI in games or, I don't know, emotion in games and games and narrative and game design and game development and industry studies and so on, they're all going into their own um, separate little ways. Mm. I can only answer from the point of view of fictional games. And I think this is a particularly interesting topic to further develop, especially for games scholars that, as I mentioned, have a background in either philosophy, theater, literary studies, or media studies. So it's sort of like a maybe a bit of a side kind of topic, but one that can be approached, I believe, fruitfully by um, game scholars that are interested in narrative expression, the artistic or philosophical value of games. So I hope this little effort of ours is pioneering a new field that will become part of the future of game studies. I don't know how important or how frequented, but this is my hope. For the rest of the discipline, I don't think I can say anything interesting or meaningful. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think one thing that's happening generally within game studies and, and within a lot of similar sort of disciplines that were born as small niche communities gathered around a very an object that was not particularly present in academia before you know maybe 25 or 30 years ago mm -hmm. uh, is that is that the, 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 the sort of the interest the focus of game studying is that diversifying in a way and so uh, we are including uh, for example uh, analog games as as part of our research focus which is something that would not have been maybe possible or, or, or as common a, a few years ago. So we're 
sort of starting to look into playful objects that are not necessarily digital. And of course, uh, as an even more general uh, take, I would say there's a diversification in the, in the kinds of themes, both in terms of politics and representation that we are addressing in a kind of voices that are being heard within the communities of game studies. And I think this is very healthy and good for for, for the field, for the community, and for the scientific output that we are able to produce as game scholars. As far as stuff that didn't make the cut of the book, um, I think both Stefano and I uh, are kind of toying with the idea that one thing that we did not discuss enough, but would like to maybe discuss a little further, and this is one of Stefano's sort of main points of interest, and one of Stefano's darling, so I'll maybe leave the word to him about it, is how fictional games are used for comedy or for sort of comedic effects, how these games work as comedic tools within the tool set of, of someone, uh, you know, writing a novel or, or, or sort of any form of narrative and how fictional games in their incompleteness, that their incompleteness is also can also be fun, can also be interesting in terms of their comedic effects. Stefan, do you have anything to say about this? Oh, you've been very eloquent. And in the book, we treat comedy briefly in one of the initial chapters, but it didn't become one of the key topics of focus of the book, as Rudolf also noticed. Uh, so if we were to take it, me and Ricardo, somewhere else, uh, I think the game could have done with another chapter on comedy, but this might be something for our next work or or maybe something that the listeners and the game scholars interested in this idea could take further. So I think comedy would be one. Again, self-reflexivity is very interesting and there's a lot of work to do. Uh, cultural specificity is another thing that Ricardo mentioned during one of his answers. Um, mm -hmm. So those are the like low-hanging fruits that I can think about right now. Yeah. Well, Stefano and Ricardo, we've taken a lot of your time. So more than an Apple keynote way of generating attention, one more thing. What are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? Um, this is Stefano. So I'm currently finishing a science fiction novel with a philosophical background that's going to come out, I suppose, next year with Routledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, also like working with, uh, again, Daniel and, uh, and Ricardo on other things. But what will I be playing next? I think I'm traveling to Japan starting from next week. And I downloaded a Steam game called Monster Train, which I'm hoping to master in the month and a half I'm going to be away. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a book that has nothing to do with games, uh, but I'm, uh, I was trained as a film scholar, film and media scholar. So I'm working on a book about Italian crime films of the 1970s. So oh. sort of, uh, yeah, cops and robbers types of films from the 1970s. They have a this very also sort of cool aesthetic of, you know, late 70s uh, or mid 70s, rather sort of uh, crime and violence film that are was very present in sort of Italian, Italian cinema. So I'm working mm -hmm. on a book about that. And I'm, I have bought the Metroid Prime remaster, um, and it's a game I want to revisit. I've played it back when it came out, but I would like to revisit it. So I think um, I'm going to make some time to play that in the future. Hmm. Well, these sound like awesome projects. I have to say I'm very excited. And I want to thank you now for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, take care. Goodbye and have a good week. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Bye-bye. Likewise. Bye. So, dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.inderst at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Inderst almost everywhere. See you in a bit.